Well, I'm honored to be here. Uh, as mentioned, I am one of the pastors over at Turning Point Church. We are sister churches, uh, and we are very similar in a lot of ways. However, there is one humongous, I mean, just magnificent difference between the two of us, and that's that you guys have an E at the end of your name, and we don't. And I don't even know how I can compete with that, like turning point and then life point. <laughs> I love it. It's actually, it's, it's, it's really cool, but that's the biggest difference between the two of us. And I, I just want to affirm and let you know that if you and I have called out to Christ for salvation, if we have called out to him and said, Jesus, forgive me of my sin, I want to follow you, would you make me new, then we both are bought by the same blood, amen? We're both part of the same family. I have a lot of family in Texas. I lived in Texas for a long time, and we'd call each other kinfolk at that point. And so we're kin, and I love it. And that's why I'm honored to be here. And we're going to dig into God's Word this morning. Before we do that, I do want to ask you a question. How many of you have kids or have kids in your life? Okay. Right? How about interacted with children? <laughs> Right? All of us. So if you ask a child, hey, go and do this thing, and the child says, fine, I guess I'll go. <laughs> like at that point, you're going to be like, well, I, I don't even want you to do it now. I mean, really? Come on. They're grumbling and complaining about it, and that's it's not just teenagers. Um, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. It's a lot of emotions in our house. Oh, I love it, though. But it can be that feeling like, okay, you're grumbling. I don't even want you to do this. That's kind of going to be the backdrop for what we're looking at this morning. And I don't have a PowerPoint, but you know what we do have? These guys. And what I love about what you all do is you have one in every other seat. So if you would, if you have a Bible, if you have your phone, or if you have one of these Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be starting in verse 12. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And what we're going to be doing this morning is exegeting this passage. Many of you probably know what that term means. It means that we're pulling from the text. You see, we don't want to place anything on the text. We don't want to make the Bible say what we want it to say. But rather, we want to pull from the scriptures and say what the Bible tells us to say. Amen? We don't want to be changing God's word, but we want to be changed by his word. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And we're going to go from verse 12 all the way to verse 16. And we're going to pull from the text what I believe God would have for us on this day. I'm going to read it, though, for just a moment. I'm going to read the entire section. And then we're all going to say amen at the end. Does that sound okay? Because blessed be the reading of God's word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And all God's people say, Amen. 
Now, starting off, this is an interesting text. And if you're like me, you've had it quoted to you several times whenever people have come and said, no, 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 we're not saved by grace alone through faith alone. You have to work too in order to achieve salvation. There's almost every cult teaches a form of that out there. And I've had this scripture brought to me all the time. See, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. However, seldom is the very next verse quoted to me in those moments. The very next verse in verse 13, it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now think about this for a moment with me. The God who spoke everything into motion. Okay, the, the God who, who literally sent everything, the universe, into motion by the word of his power, who formed the earth and the depths of the sea and the mountains, who made you in his image, the God who is all-powerful, the God that we see depicted in the book of Isaiah or Ezekiel and Revelation. Anybody read Revelation recently? And you have the seraphim and the cherubim around the throne crying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. This God who spoke all things into motion. It says, if you are a Christian, he works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, if that doesn't make you and I tremble, if that doesn't make us pause for a moment and think about the gravity, I don't know what will. So yes, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, understanding that this almighty, all-powerful God who spoke all things into existence works within me resides within me. And that leads to verse 14, which is a hard verse. And you know, whenever you read the Bible, a lot of times you can just kind of brush over some of the verses that we might not find as important or really think about the words, but every word matters. Verse 14 says this, do all things. Hold on, stop. Do all things, not 65%. Not 75%, not, not even get an A plus, okay, like 95 or 97%. Do all things. I mean, I don't know about you, but that sounds impossible to me. It sounds like a difference between sources, right? It sounds like the difference between a freshwater source and a saltwater source. I'll put it this way, and this will be an analogy I kind of use throughout this sermon. It's almost as if there is a well in the desert that's full of sand. People go to it, they drink sand. And then there's a well across the path in a lush pasture owned by a loving father that's full of water that always satisfies. There are two sources here. One never satisfies and one always does. So this call to do all things, it's a very serious call. And I think it has to do with the source how can I do all things? I'm going to get there. But first, do all things without what? Grumbling. Okay. How many of you have grumbled this morning? Okay. 
Look, I, I get it. I understand it. The, the, the actual word here in the Greek, it's, it's almost like a low guttural grumble, grumble, grumble. Like, I mean, you know, you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, you're grumpy, you kick the cat, you don't have a cat, somebody else's cat, you spill coffee on your pants, you say some words you don't need to, and by the end of it, you're here, and it's like, man, do I want to sing? I don't, I don't know how I'm feeling. What's going on? Like, we, we can be tempted to grumble, and it, I mean, it's part of human nature in a lot of ways. I mean, like I said, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. There's some grumbling that goes on in our house from time to time. But you know that grumbling is a direct response to God's providence. If we believe every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, who can tell me how many years was Israel in the wilderness? Forty, okay. Israel wandered in the wilderness... For 40 years, because they grumbled against God. It's part of it. And even during the 40 years, what does God do? He sends them manna, okay? Look, there are birds flying around depositing bread (laughs) for them to eat, okay? And they're giving them just enough bread to eat so that they don't have to gather on the Shabbat, on the Sabbath, so that they could rest on that day. And Israel still then is like, man, I wish we had something else other than this divine bread given to us from heaven by birds. (laughs) We laugh, we laugh, but, and it can be easy looking now, like, oh, those silly Israelites, come on. But you and I have way more in common with the Israelites than we like to give credit for. I mean, there's a whole meme out there dedicated to first world problems. (laughs) Okay, like, man, Starbucks got my drink wrong. <laughs> I don't know how I'll carry on. <laughs> First of all, don't go to Starbucks. Go to a nice local coffee shop. There's plenty of them in Olympia. That's my opinion, okay? It's my opinion. Um, <laughs> you know, but there's so many things that we grumble about and moan and groan about. And the Bible's really clear here to do all things without grumbling. And then next, it says, or disputing. Now, not only are we inwardly grumbling and we're told not to do that, but now we're told to not dispute. And dispute takes more than one person. Okay, dispute is arguing. It's contention. It's, well, I'm going to grumble about you grumbling about me. Anybody ever have an experience of that in your marriage or in your friends, with your kids? Well, I'm grumpy that you're grumpy. (laughs) We're to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And I don't know about you, but for the past three years, I have seen so much disputing, not just within culture, but within God's church, within God's church in the United States, and with God's church in Lacey, Olympia, and Tumwater. Friends, we've let things divide us in the church that should not, especially in line with this command. Silly things that hold no eternal value or weight. That will fail us if we put our hope in them. Our unity, our unity, is not based on the fact that you guys have point in your name. It's not based that we're both a part of Converge. Our unity is based upon Jesus, Christ, and Christ alone. Amen? So then what should divide us? I'll tell you, it shouldn't be my political affiliation. 
shouldn't be my views on teams, my views on the Seahawks. No, the scripture here calls for unity. To not dispute, to not grumble. Now, like I said, this has to come from a source, right? I can't just tell you willy-nilly, okay, well, stop your grumbling and disputing. Go home and work on that one. (laughs) Good luck, by the way, right? It really has to come from the source. Why? Because, for instance, if I'm rightly seeing the providence of God, if I really am at this moment rightly seeing the providence of God, no matter what suffering befalls me, no matter what hard thing happens, I can still say, but you know what? Jesus is better. No matter what sin I might be caught in or wrestling with, I can still say, you know what? This sin is bad, but Jesus is better. There's me going back to the source and disputing, no matter how annoying my brother or sister in Christ is, no matter how many areas we might disagree on, do you know what? Jesus is better, and he's the one who unifies us. So to do all things without grumbling or disputing, it's us recognizing he who works in us. I'm not telling you to run away from sin because of how bad sin is. Sin is bad. As a matter of fact, sin is not a uh, religious term first. It's an archery term. It means missing the mark. If you shoot an arrow and you don't hit a bullseye, you've sinned. You've missed the mark. Sin is bad. I'm not telling you to run from sin because it's bad, though. I'm telling you to flee from sin for us to do this together because of how much better Jesus is. There's a huge difference between a kid looking at a cookie jar saying, "Mm, not to touch that. But that cookie sounds really good right about now. Mm, That seems really good, actually. I think I'm going to go ahead and do it. Versus, well, they told me not to touch the cookie jar, but you know what? Mom said that she's going to come home and make me a cake. I think I can wait. It's that difference. So what source do we live from? We live from the source of the living God and the power that he gives us. And if we do this, let's move on to the next verse. Verse 15, it says, To do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Stop there. Those are some more moral and ethical words. Blameless means to be like above reproach, right? Like say, for instance, is John in here? I don't see him. Oh, man, I used him as as an example earlier. Okay. Well, well, I'll use him as an example anyway. For instance, if, if John's neighbor were to come up and tell the HOA, this guy's bashing in mailboxes in the neighborhood, most of the people around him would probably say, John, no way. Come on. That's silly. That's how the scripture tells us to live in such a way that if somebody were to bring a charge against us, the accuser would be put to shame. That's what it means to be blameless. And innocent, that means that you really haven't bashed anybody's mailboxes in, okay? Not just having the appearance of it, but actually not doing it. We are called to live in this way. Now, if all you've heard so far from this sermon is works, 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 my goodness, I need to go home and work on not grumbling anymore and not disputing anymore. I need to go home and make sure I'm blameless. Okay, how am I going to do that and that I'm innocent? This next part is the icing on the cake. This is what brings it all together. It says, children, 
of God without blemish. Let me explain this. This term children of God, right now in our culture it is thrown around. There's a belief right now where it's, it's that every human being is a child of God. But in the New Testament, that's not true. Every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being is a creation of God and thus deserving of love and honor and dignity and for us to honor them. But in a very real way, in the Old Testament, the only children of God were the Israelites and those who would come to follow them. And in the New Testament, the only children of God are the ones who have been adopted by trusting in the Son. Does that make sense? So whenever I say children of God here, that is a very large, humongous claim. How in the world am am I able to, to do things without grumbling or disputing and being blameless and innocent and being a child of God without blemish? Here's the hope that you and I have, folks, because Jesus obeyed the will of the Father perfectly. He only did what he saw the Father doing. Jesus did all things without grumbling or complaining. It says that like a sheep to the slaughter, he was silent before his shearers. Jesus was perfectly blameless and innocent. No charge could be brought against him. Even the thief on the cross realized that. Jesus was the perfect and holy, righteous Son of God without blemish. Just like the Lamb in Revelation, behold this Lamb without blemish. Jesus is the one who lived a life that you and I could not live, laid it down so that you and I might take it up. Amen? This is what I mean whenever I say we are saved by Christ and Christ alone. And this also means that we can no longer simply assume that we are Christians by association with the church or by the fact that I come and and sit in a seat or a pew on Sunday, maybe even give some money to some charitable causes. No. If you and I were to examine the Scriptures, we would see there is a very clear difference between the world between those who follow the world right now and the Christian. And it's not just having tight shoelaces and doing all the right things. It's actually receiving all that Christ has to offer you right now. It's realizing that He is so much better. If we do that, if we recognize that Christ has done this on our behalf and we seek to live blameless and innocent lives because we're children of God, because Jesus is that much better. It says this in the next part of the verse. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You and I will begin to notice the crookedness and the twistedness of this generation by the way, of what you and I are a part of outside of Christ. And also, by the way, that we still interact with because we don't live in a commune, do me. Like, we don't, we don't live in a commune or a cult, though y'all have wonderful property back there. Right? <laughs> if you're watching Pastor Jim, I'm sorry. <laughs> right? But we don't, we don't isolate ourselves from the world, but we live in the world, not being of the world, right? We begin to notice 
the crookedness and the wickedness of this present generation, but also within our own hearts. You see, becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you're just going to automatically stop sinning all the time and only listen to Caleb and, you know, only share Toby Mac posts or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't. Okay. It means that a war has begun. It means that you no longer can accept the sin in your life as it is. It means that you recognize that Jesus is so much better. And so now, as John Owen the Puritan said, you will be killing sin or it will be killing you. You make war because your captain is trustworthy. Because he is so much better. And instead of choosing the well full of sand, which never satisfies, you now can go to the open green pasture and drink from the water of a loving father. If you are not a Christian today in this place, maybe you have come to church your whole life, but you haven't really called out to Jesus and said, Jesus, save me. I need you. Or maybe you've never really been to church and this is your introduction. First, I can tell you, um, just being here for a little bit at Life Point and also getting to know Jim, this is a wonderful congregation to plug yourself into. This is a loving congregation that loves the Bible. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite things is that the first thing on your website it says is clear biblical teaching. It's so important. But if you are not a Christian, I do want to say this to you. Have you ever wondered why things only seem to satisfy for a little while? I mean, I've been there where your whole identity is wrapped up in something for a couple of weeks and then you move on to the next thing. With Jesus, you will be satisfied. And I do want to say this. I've spoken about sin a bit here. And that's because there is a very real judgment coming. And we miss this. This is the black velvet backdrop to the diamond that is the gospel. It's God is just. And at the end of the day, he's going to judge on the basis of works. And we are saved not by our works, but by the works of Jesus. Would you come and trust him today and have everlasting life that begins right now? Call out to him. So if we live from the source of the living God, if we really do, and we recognize the, the crookedness of this present generation and even our own hearts, the next part of the verse says this, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So let me read this all together. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Christians, if we really were to believe that Jesus actually gives us this power over sin, this mastery over it, that he really communes with us in a deep and personal way, if we were to really take him at his word, we really will shine as lights in the world. However, let me warn you, shining as a light might look different than we think. 
You see, we don't shine as lights in the world for people to look and say, look at all those good works they're doing. There is a scripture that says, you know, that men might give glory to God for the good works you do. But Jesus also said, don't do good works to be noticed by men. If we shine as lights in the world, that means that we will expose darkness. In in John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, well, actually verse 20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If we are shining as light, that does mean we will partner in some causes with people we disagree with. I mean, we will stand against injustice. We will stand for the oppressed. We will fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. But we will do, do so holding to biblical truth. Because this never changes, and the culture is constantly changing. A really good example in our community right now is Options Pregnancy Center. They are a wonderful ministry, if you get the chance, to serve with. They're saving lives. They're taking care of the whole family. They're giving resources, and they're sharing the gospel. Last month, they had somebody accept Jesus. Isn't that cool? We will shine as lights, really, truthfully shining as lights. Steve, this morning, is talking to the kiddos about whenever Moses went up to the mountain and spent time with God, and he came down from the mountain, and he literally was glowing, okay? The people of Israel are like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're going to step away from you, right? Like that, though. Am I saying that your face will actually be shining? I don't know. God can do what he wants. But I, I don't think so right now. I think what it will do is it will demonstrate that his gospel, his good news, actually really truthfully meets every single one of us where we are at because it is a gospel to humanity for the glory of God. And last I checked, every single one of us are human, right? Right? Okay. <laughs> Wasn't much response on that one. <laughs> It meets us where we're at. It meets us in our own darkness. So if the first point is to live from the source of the living God, the second one is this, live holy and set apart like Jesus. But remember, to live holy and set apart is not to abstain from the bad things simply because they're bad, and they are bad. It's to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's for you and I to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. It's for us to look to the cross and to say, he has done it. I am free. And to let that permeate its way through every area of our life. That's what it means to be holy and set apart. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, look, you've given me a whole bunch of things to do and think about. Like, how in the world do I do this? Paul has the answer. Who would have thought that the Bible would have an answer on this, right? Come on. 
In verse 16, it says, holding fast to the word of life. Now, immediately you might be thinking, oh man, I better start reading my Bible more. Stop it. I'm not saying don't read your Bible more, but what I am saying is this, folks, I know people who have read the Old and New Testament front and back multiple times that don't follow Jesus, okay? Self-admittedly, okay? I know people who know the Scripture really, really, really well, but don't know Jesus. And I just want to submit to you really quick as a side note. I think you can accomplish more sometimes by meditating on a very small chunk of Scripture for an entire week and praying through it and thinking through it than feverishly trying to finish your Bible in a year program and not really retain anything. It's the truth, though, right? I mean, if this really is God's Word, I don't want to just know it qualitatively. I really want it to change me. So whenever I say whenever the word says holding fast to the word of life, that doesn't just mean reading the Bible over and over and over again and not getting anything from it. It means that whenever you come to read the scriptures, you are coming expecting to feast. Right? Like maybe after church today, you're going to be hungry and you want lunch. Maybe you're going to go somewhere that's incredible, right? Maybe you're really excited about your lunch plans. Uh, For me, California taco truck. Amazing. Okay, every time I go there, or Bowlegs, Cajun restaurant, I'm going to start naming off restaurants. I better stop. (sighs) I'm thinking, man, I'm ready for a feast. I am so excited about this. We can come to his word that way. Because he really can and will change you. It's a real promise. It's a very supernatural promise. We have to be willing to accept his supernatural intervention in our lives that he promises. Holding fast to the word of life, uh, in the the Greek word, it's holding fast and holding out. And I really like to think of it this way. If you're holding fast to his word, if you're really believing him at his word, if you're taking him at his word, then you're going to hold out his word to others. And you're going to say, look, would you read this? Would Would you hear what God says? Would you understand this? Would you celebrate this with me? And, I mean, even just something as simple as, as in John 3, we can go back there whenever Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And he says, just as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up. And all who look on him and believe will be saved. Now, first, at first it doesn't seem like a simple teaching, but I'll just put it this way. Israel was grumbling again. They were disputing again and grumbling, and so they were being judged. And there were these snakes that were biting them. And God said, Moses, I want you to craft a serpent, and I want you to raise up the serpent. And anybody who looks at that serpent, if they simply look at it, they will be healed. They will be saved. And Jesus is using that story to say simply, look at me. Look at me. Sin, the world, and Satan is currently destroying Everything. It's uncreating everything right now. But God in his mercy has sent his son. Just look at me. Just look at me. Holding fast to his word really does mean standing firm on the truth and giving it to others. I'll put it another way. 
a lot of mainline denominations, especially in the United States, are forsaking historic teaching and doctrine. It is what it is. Because there are things in here that are hard. The reason it's hard is because God is holy. We are not. And also, by the way, a lot of the horrible things committed in here are done by humans. But like I said, one of the things I love about this church is that you do hold to historic teaching. And actually, it's important enough for you to say you can expect clearly taught biblical teaching here. But holding out the word of life, I'll say one more thing on this. It doesn't always look like you think it'll look like. You don't need to go up to somebody and say, did you know that in Luke chapter 4, verse 6, it says this. (laughs) There are times, this is one of my favorite things to do, there are times where you can just quote it. Without even chapter and verse, just quote it in a conversation and see what happens. I used to do this ministry called Conversation and Coffee at SPSCC for about four years, where I'd offer free coffee, food, and conversation to college students. And I loved doing this with the philosophy majors and minors, uh, because that that was what I did in college. I loved doing this. We'd be talking about something, you know, they're like first philosophy class ever, so they know a lot. (laughs) And and, uh, like every philosophy person thinks, right? And, uh, and I will quote something that Jesus said, but I won't say it's in the Bible yet. And they'll be like, wow, you know, I never thought of that. And I'm like, can I tell you where it's from? Let's talk about it. Can I tell you where it's from? And already right there, we see the word of God actually being sharp, cutting like a double-edged sword. This last part can seem kind of confusing. I'm going to read it really quick. It says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The assumption here can be like, geez, Paul, you're bringing it back to our minds again that you're the one that discipled us. Seems kind of proud or prideful, doesn't it? But Paul does this on purpose. And actually, Jesus did this very same thing. Paul, I think, is bringing this to light as a passive teaching because so far, the Philippians, if you, if you look at, I mean, if you were to just go and read the book of Philippians today, you would be really blessed, okay? But if we're looking at the argument here, from the beginning, Paul gives thanks, and then he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus is my source, not my 401k, not my political affiliation, not the American dream, not my famous fancy car, not the best barbecue on the planet. Like, Jesus is my source. So to live as Christ, to die as gain. And then he says, by the way, Jesus demonstrated humility. He was willing to submit to death. And so we are to be unified like Christ in his humility. And then he says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you. So do all things, receiving from him joyfully, like innocent children of God without blemish, shine like lights. And by the way, I labored here for you because I love you. Now I want you to do the same. We can't just let it sit here where, okay, yes, I have the source of life. I have Jesus. I'm really seeking after him daily, and I'm fleeing from sin in my life because he's so much better, but I'm just going to sit in my little bubble. 
Something I'm passionate about is multi-generational mentoring. For those in my generation, you might not think that the older generation has any interest in you, but that's wrong. There are plenty of people in the older generation that would absolutely love to adopt your family as grandkiddos and things like that, especially in a military town like this. And for those in the older generation, you feel like you don't have anything relevant to offer us. Somebody teach us how to do our taxes, please. Right, but do you see what I'm saying? You actually have so much to offer. You can invest in the younger generation. What it looks like to have a marriage that's based on Jesus that lasts a long time. What it looks like to raise children. What it looks like to steward your finances well. What it looks like to actually follow after Jesus in the long run. Paul here is saying, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I labored among you. I ran among you. I invested in you. Do the same. Philippians 3.17, Paul even says, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have seen in us. So folks, just to... Just to bring it back around, I've been told I'm a Baptist preacher, so I told you what I was going to tell you. I told you, and then now I'm telling you what I told you. <laughs> you ever notice that? Um, to bring it back around, Jesus leaves no middle ground. We're either living from the source of life or we're living from a source of death that will not satisfy. Okay? And if we're living from the source of life, we will live a holy and set-apart life. Lastly, we are to teach others what it means to receive from Him. My encouragement for all of us is don't bow to a culture that is always changing and is never satisfied. Follow the God of the heavens who never changes and is completely satisfied in Christ's work on the cross. Amen? Don't follow a culture that is always changing and never satisfied. Because it is always changing, and it is never satisfied, and there's nothing new under the sun. But our God, He never changes. His Word never changes. That's why we can hold fast to it. And if you and I believe and trust Christ, the Father is satisfied in Christ's work on our behalf. This leaves no room for you and I to live as a Christian a life of, eh. Does it? I want to challenge you. Jesus did not come so that we could just fulfill all our own little dreams. He came to fulfill His kingdom in you and through you to empower you. Don't settle. Don't settle. I ask this of Turning Point because they're my congregation, but the beautiful thing is, is like I said earlier, we are bought by the same blood. Amen? So I want to ask this of you. Will you with me seek to, to, to not follow a culture that is always changing and never satisfied? But will you with me seek the God who never changes and who is perfectly satisfied 
by the death and resurrection of his son. Will you do that? Yes? Will you not settle for just a lull life in Christ, but will you with me strive to receive everything that Christ has to offer right now? Will you? If you're serious about it, buckle up. Because we're going to see Thurston County change. And that's what I want. I think that's what you want too, amen? I want to read for you a scripture. One of my favorite things about the New Testament is its quotation of the Old Testament. There's actually two scriptures I want to read. We're teaching in Matthew right now at Turning Point, and Matthew quotes the Old Testament so frequently. But if you and I are serious about this commitment together, it says in Malachi 4.2, we get to be a fulfillment of prophecy. Did you know that? But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So I live on a farm. We don't own the farm, but I live on a farm, and we just got some calves, okay? And they're super cute, but how many of you have ever seen a calf romping around? If you haven't, go and Google it. It's super cute, okay? Don't you want to be like that, though? Don't you want to have that kind of joy that comes from Jesus? Don't you want to be romping around like a calf? Or if you look at the kiddos out there, they're just so full of energy and happiness and excitement. That's what God offers us right now. We should just take it, though. Forget that old well of sand. It won't satisfy. And I guarantee you, if we turn to him, he will answer. You might be thinking in your head, I hope so, of all the passages that teach that. But I'm going to read for you Hosea 6, verse 3. And it says this. This is about rebellious Israel coming back to him. It says, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains, that water the earth. Again, like I said, I live on a farm, and we've had a lot of spring rains, haven't we, Washingtonians? Not only does it produce pollen, it produces life. Do you want that? Press on to know him, and I guarantee you, without a shadow of a doubt, you will receive it. I'm going to pray. We have a lot to celebrate this morning as there are baptisms, which is incredible. I'm going to pray, and then we will get to watch and celebrate with brothers and sisters in Christ. Almighty God, we come before you, I pray, stoked by your word and by your word alone. I pray, Jesus, that we would only see you. And just as as St. Patrick prayed, Lord, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ above me, Christ below me, Christ to my right, Christ to my left, Christ be all around me. May we as a church, as the unified church here in Thurston County, may we thirst and hunger for you. May we make war with sin and run to you. May we echo with St. Augustine who said, Lord, Will what you will. Command what you will. Will what you will within me. 
We celebrate you this morning. Would you humble our hearts, reveal to us, Holy Spirit, the areas that we are not receiving the life you have for us. And help us to drink deep of the well of grace. I pray, Lord, if there are those here who do not know you, that this would be the morning they call out to you, that they receive the real life that you have to offer, that they would be born again and made new, and that we can welcome them into the family. I'm so thankful for this family, for this body of believers. And I'm thankful that we can partner together as one, all proclaiming the glory of Christ. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray and ask that you would send these folks out with power in Jesus' name. Amen.